0: Welcome to Legendary Talks, a My Spring Harvest podcast bringing you the best sermons, Bible studies and seminars from over the decades. Today we're hearing from Danielle Strickland as she shares on the life of Jesus as the prototype of new humanity. Back at Spring Harvest 2023.
1: Hey, I have been longing my whole life to be able to be in more than one place at the same time. And I feel like I'm just like living a dream here. So uh, it's exciting. Jesus is alive. And as I was uh, praying about this, even just even earlier today, I was uh, thinking about being with my son at a Good Friday kind of lament. We did sort of the, the sign the we had a cross, a bunch of inner city sort of communities. And I was in it. Uh, leading a a community, and we were uh, doing this like alleyway sort of lament of the death of Jesus, you know, sort of entering into the sorrow of that moment and the sacrifice of Jesus. My sons, Moses was about two and Judah was about five, maybe four or five. And they're normally pretty good kids. Okay. They're not amazing, but they're pretty good kids. And this day, Judah specifically was feral, I mean, he was just, he was running away in like inner city alleys. You can imagine uh, a little bit of how difficult this might be. And he just would not listen. And he was agitated. And he was, anyway, so finally I just was like, I got to call it. I got to take these kids home. My husband was somewhere else in the world doing something else. And I was just like, I'm out. I got to take these kids. And I was pretty upset with Judah because he was the instigator of all this. And I remember putting him in the car and I was like buckling him in. And I just said like, you know, in my holiness, I said, what is wrong with you today? (laughs) And I remember Judah looked at me and he goes, wrong with me? Wrong with me? Why didn't you tell these people that Jesus isn't dead? He's alive. (laughs) And uh, my posture towards my, uh, you know, ornery son quickly changed. And I said, let's go to McDonald's and have a a happy meal. You know, like you deserve a prize. You're right. He is alive. And to try to explain to like a four or five-year-old brain that we're just like entering into the lament, but that Jesus is alive, You know, Jesus is alive, and the resurrection of Jesus, it means a lot. It changes a lot, and not just in the abstract. It doesn't just change things theologically. It doesn't just change the way that we think about God. It changes the way that we live our lives. It changes the way that we move in the world. It changes the direction. It flips, literally, the value systems of our lives, and it begins to, to work inside of us. The resurrection, the life, the love of God has a movement to it. So, we're going to have a look at the life of Jesus. He's obviously the one, he's the prototype of a new humanity. I often say this it's important to remember that Jesus is not an exception to the human race, he's a prototype. Of the human race. He's a prototype of the new humanity. He is who we are supposed to be like. This is an invitation for us to live a different way. And that's the invitation. So, this love, this life, this resurrection power is not just something that happens instantly, although there are moments of the suddenly of that where we get a glimpse and we're like, whoa. It's a movement. Resurrection life of Jesus has a movement to it. And Jesus invites us to move with him and to act with him and to move in the spirit along with him to see life come in our day and in our time. I'm going to suggest that the starting place of everybody in the movement towards life starts with death. That's going to sound a little uh, counterintuitive because the idea is that we're raging against death. But actually, death, or what I would say, a, a fatalistic worldview is where we all begin. Represented by this guy, the best, I think, the Marvel a villain of epic proportions. His name is Thanos, according to Marvel Universe. According to the Bible, it's thanatos, which is the Greek word for death. So this guy who tries to convince... His entire universe, in the Marvel uh, universe, you can tell I have three boys, can't you? Uh, In the Marvel universe, that death is inevitable, and that death has the final word, and that literally all Thanos has to do is snap his fingers, and he can cause havoc, and he can bring death, and everything is lost, and there's no sense in fighting it, and there's no sense in fighting against it, because it's already certain, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. That's the spirit of Thanos. Thanos. That is death. That is what I would say is a fatalistic worldview, which I believe in our day and in our time is the chief enemy of our globe. Not the fact that death exists, but the worldview of death, the fatalistic worldview that would try to convince us that it's too late and it's too hard and we should just give up and give in to the inevitability of death. That is one of the greatest tricks and lies of the enemy that Jesus has come to destroy. And there is a way out of that worldview. And uh, let's have a look at the scriptures to help us along our way. So we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. I know you guys have been deep diving this, so I appreciate that. So you've got a little bit of, you've got all the context that you need, but we're going to read this uh, through. This is a a snapshot in the life of Jesus. This is how Jesus works. And this is the way of Jesus. And then, of course, the way of Jesus is always the invitation to us as well to follow in that way. So let's read it together. This is Matthew chapter 9. This is in the middle of Jesus' speech. He gets interrupted. How rude. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. Okay, so just I want you to just, just pause there for a second. While he was saying this, so he's in the middle of a speech, a synagogue leader who is somebody who is highly esteemed, somebody who is an example, a religious leader, somebody who follows all the rules, somebody that we might say is worthy of connection with Jesus, comes and knelt before him. So he assumes a posture before Jesus of humility. He's been brought to his knees and he says, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. This is a man who is desperate, a man who has come to the end of his own resources. And I should say a man who has come to the end of his religious resources as well. This is a worthy man, an exceptional man, a leader, a religious leader. And he's come to a fatalistic end. There is no more that he can do. He has been brought to his knees by his own inability to change what he needs to change. Anyone there? Many of you in this room, religious leaders, who had been saying the right thing, who had been, you know, even maybe even thinking the right thing or at least projecting the right thing from a pulpit. But in your own life, your inability to change what exists, your own stuckness, the end of yourself is actually very consciously before you. And in that posture, you're able to humble yourself and come to the only one left who might be able to help you. That's a beautiful place to get, by the way. So for those of you who are religious leaders, who are stuck in that cycle of like shame and self-loathing because you shouldn't be here, this is the place everyone begins. Welcome. The end of yourself is the beginning of the kingdom of God. Jesus put it like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom, the entryway into the upside down kingdom, or what I prefer to call the right side up kingdom, because I think we're living in the upside down and Jesus is living in the right side up, but it doesn't matter. That entryway in is the end of yourself. So if that's where you're at today, if that's where you're at, you're in good company and you're in the right spot, hang in there. Jesus is here. Jesus got up. Yay, and went with him. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a second. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and she said to herself, because she can't talk to him, she's not worthy. Okay. This is a story within a story within a story. That's how much Jesus loves stories, by the way. That's how much action is in the gospel text. That's how much Jesus is involved. He's being interrupted once. Now he's being interrupted in the interruption. If you are a single mom out there or just a mom in general and you think Jesus doesn't know how you feel, pay attention to this text. All that happens in this text is Jesus keeps getting interrupted, okay? And he goes with it again. So here's someone worthy, a religious leader. Here's someone unworthy. Not only is she unworthy uh, in a sense of her own unworthiness, she already feels unworthy. She's been told she's unworthy because she's been told she's unclean. And what's happening to her is a social stigma. It's something where we marginalize people, and particularly in this context, although I would say in context all around the world, including even today in many churches that I have been working with, we marginalize people, women specifically, and say that they are not able to speak or to touch or to be in public or to connect with leaders in a way that might bring them healing. What is actually afoot is a silencing, is a marginalization, is a, a you stay at a distance. You stay away. We don't want to hear from you. We don't want you to be here. But this woman managed to summon the courage, which no doubt is connected to her own desperation, to actually get to a public place and to touch the cloak of Jesus. Because she said to herself, if only I can touch his cloak, I will be healed. I don't know. If you're here and you feel unworthy and you've been marginalized or you've been silenced or you've been told your voice doesn't matter. But I can tell you this right now. Jesus has time for the worthy, for the religious, for those who think of themselves or other people think of themselves as worthy. And Jesus has just the same amount of time and openness and invitation to those people who have been told and who believe they are not worthy. Jesus is open to everyone. So wherever you are in that tent or watching in your cabin or or in your own mind, even where you're like, but I, but I, but I, but I, I'm not good enough, but I'm not this, but I'm not that, but I'm injured and bleeding everywhere. But I, Jesus can heal you too and will. Let's keep
0: reading because it keeps going and it's beautiful what happens in the story. We just want to take a quick break to talk to you about spring harvest. If you're enjoying this podcast, you should definitely join us at Minehead or Skegness this Easter. It's five days full of inspiring talks, heartfelt worship and family fun. On top of an amazing programme of sessions, it's hosted at Butlins, so you'll get access to the swimming pool, fun fair, play parks and so much more. It's great for all ages, a place where the whole church comes together at the pinnacle of the Christian calendar. To take time out, find space to hear from God, and feel refreshed and equipped to live the life He's calling you to. Find out more, including dates and prices at springharvest.org. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart,
1: my daughter. He said, Your faith has healed you. I, I want you to just take heart, daughter. Your faith, your faith, has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Then it kind of skips forward the story. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him which is what people do when you believe in resurrection, by the way. People laugh, people scoff, people mock because it's not possible because they believe in a fatalistic worldview. That's what the world that they live in. It's too late and it's too hard. So they laugh and they mock. But after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took the girl by the hand and she got up. Jesus is moving in an empowering way. In Jesus's response, the way that resurrection life is beginning to move through Jesus is, is different than what we might think. And I wanna talk about how. So fatalism, we've talked about. Barna uh, just did a study, by the way, a global study of about 25,000 uh, 13 to 18-year-olds and asked him a whole bunch of questions about faith and spirituality and specifically about Jesus. Here's interesting a stat. Uh, there's 25,000 from all over the world. And they, 47% of all the teens in the study, whether they were Christians or not, believed. 47% believed that Jesus died. 33% believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, and 21% believed that Jesus was still working in the world. Isn't that a fascinating stat? And also kind of sad. 47% believe that he died. 33% believe that he was raised to life. 21% believe that he's still actively moving in the world today. It would be easy of me as an older Christian leader to say, oh, what terrible faith or what a terrible trajectory or say like, oh, this is horrible. But it would be wrong for me to judge a generation of their observation of my behavior. And when I say my, I'm talking about the church. See, I think what they're observing is that the historical Jesus is believable, that even maybe even a third of all teenagers around the world believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What they find hard to believe is what we find missing in our churches, missing in our world today, and that is that Jesus is alive and working in the world today that people are actually representing Jesus, that they can see Jesus at work by the way that we live our lives. That should cause us to examine again, to live differently, to say, Jesus, how can we be representatives of your movement towards resurrection life in the way that we live our lives? I'm going to show you this little chart that I created. I believe that there is a way that resurrection happens. There's a movement towards the ultimate fulfillment of resurrection life, which is love personified, which is life breaking through death. And I believe that the way that we do this is as important as doing it uh, itself. The way that Jesus does what he does, the way that Jesus raises people, the way that Jesus heals people, the way that we get invited to do the same matters. Not just so much we should do it, but the way we do it matters. I would say that out of a fatalistic worldview, the invitation is towards a sympathetic worldview, That's the first awakening in how resurrection works its way out in our life. The movement of love in our life awakens our hearts to feel. Now, the problem with the sympathetic worldview, of course, is that it's just the beginning. It's not the end. And I I don't know about you, but in my Christian life, I feel like much of uh, the way people motivated me to care about the poor or to care about others or to work for healing or to give money to the cause or to give my life was just through a sympathetic worldview as though the sympathy was enough. And what happens is sympathy is not enough. But I want to say this because I don't want to critique sympathetic worldview because it is an awakening. The fact that you can feel, the fact that you feel sorrow, Godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to salvation, which leaves no regrets. That's how Paul put it. This is the beginning of a journey towards life. A sympathetic worldview is a way of getting out of the grip of a fatalistic worldview, of feeling nothing at all, of deadening to the, cause, to the pain and the suffering in the world. But a sympathetic worldview is just the beginning of the way life works. It's just the beginning. But I also want to say that it's a necessary beginning, to the way that love works, to the way that resurrection life works in the world. And without it, we can end up doing things. But if we're not awakened in our heart, if we don't feel, if we don't actually have passion towards, if we if our hearts are not open and broken by the things that break the heart of God, often what we do ends up being harmful instead of helpful. A sympathetic worldview is is um, not enough. You've seen this in the States right now with all the shootings, the mass shootings that are happening. You remember, people are saying thoughts and prayers, and then there's a whole movement now of young people, particularly, saying thoughts and prayers are not enough. Now, we know that prayer is one of the most powerful things we can do, and I'm never going to discourage anyone from praying and thinking about things and feeling bad about things. But I do want to say they're right. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. They're the beginning, but they're not the end. That awakening in our hearts, that feeling of pain, that, that, that invitation to feel is actually a beautiful way of knowing that you are moving towards resurrection life. Sometimes it's the only way to know that you're still living and that God is at work within you is that you're still feeling. Now, one of the greatest invitations that we're also suffering in this season is to numb what we feel. The numbing of what we feel is that gravitational pull towards uh, fatalism. And I believe that that invitation to numb what we feel drags us into fatalism And because it's easier to live in fatalism than it is to live in sympathy. But it's only easier to live in fatalism than it is to live in sympathy if sympathy is where you're going to stay. And uh, the invitation that Jesus gives us is not just to feel for, but to keep on moving along that movement of life. I wanted to say this, that uh, one of the things I've, I've learned a lot in my own uh, movements with Jesus and the invitation Jesus has given me to partner with him in places of deep pain and places of deep sorrow and places of deep suffering, is that actually I have got to allow myself to feel. I cannot just turn it off and then just do good work without feeling the pain because there's something about the feeling of pain that helps me enter into the way of God and the way of Jesus. One of the great examples of Jesus, of course, is the way that he felt. He feels things. He's fully alive. All through the scriptures, he's weeping. He's joyful. He's angry. He's the core emotions of Jesus are alive and well and expressed and felt. He is being moved on a regular basis. So this idea of actually feeling, I don't know about you, but I spent most of my Christian life being told I couldn't trust my feelings and actually being taught to shut them down. I remember recently going on a run and um, I was using a coaching system on my running, and the coach was saying it was just a recovery run, so I was supposed to take it easy. So the coach was constantly saying, take it easy, listen to your body, take it easy, listen to your body. When you're running, you should be having a conversation. Your body should be having a conversation with your mind, and your mind should be having a conversation with your body, where you're both listening to each other so that you're becoming better. And I just remember going, What? I have never listened to my, I've not like not listened to my body. I've been told and I've been taught and I have practiced shutting it down. As soon as my body has like a whinge, I'm like, shut up. You're whinging again. I'm just, as soon as my body like has a pain, I take a Tylenol as quick as possible. I'm like, shut it down. I don't want to, I don't need to feel that. And I think in so many ways that impulse in our culture and that impulse, even sometimes in our Christian traditions has actually deadened us to sympathy deadened us to the invitation to feel the way that God feels about sorrow, to feel for other people. Um, Dr. Paul Brandt and uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Gift of Pain a generation ago, where he realized in his research for leprosy that leprosy wasn't actually destroying people's limbs like they thought. What leprosy did was it deadened the pain receptors in people's bodies. And if people can't feel pain, they actually end up injuring themselves, So it was the leprosy patients themselves that were injuring themselves, but they didn't know it because they couldn't feel it. If that isn't a cultural observation of what numbing pain and pushing down feelings and refusing to allow our hearts to open to the pain of the world does, I don't know what else is. But we can't stay there. But that's where we start. And the reason I want to say that is because so many of us are scared to move into a sympathetic worldview because we're scared of feeling. We're scared of feeling the pain. We're scared of entering into the sorrow. Recently, I I wrote a book on hope. And one of the things that struck me this year on hope and why it's so difficult for us is because hope is not happy. It's honest. It's honest. It's honest before it's happy. There's a reason why, you know, a a third of the Bible is just lament and honest sorrow about the conditions of people or the temple or the, the people of God or the conditions of the world. And it's true in our lives, too. We do not have to be afraid to feel, but we don't have to stay there. Jesus goes with. The people makes room for the people because he has already moved into a sympathetic. He feels for us. The scripture says it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. The scripture tells us that it was because God so loved the world that he came. It wasn't out of some stoic obedience. He was fully passionate. We call the events of the last week the passion of Jesus because Jesus opened his heart to feel the sorrow of the world. It is okay to feel And it's an invitation to life, but it's not enough to stay there. Jesus invites us to go with and move into an empathetic worldview. An empathetic worldview is not just feeling bad for, it's going with, it's connection It's the connection with the people that we're called to serve. It is actually doing it with the people. This is where we see Jesus' example of that scripture that we just taught is so profound in this space because Jesus takes people by the hand and it says the girl got up, not Jesus. And and Jesus to the woman, the woman reaches out and power goes out of Jesus. But Jesus says, you are the one responsible for your healing. Jesus has entered in fully in an empathetic worldview. He just does not stand at a distance and feel bad. He enters in and makes a genuine connection with the people that is empowering, that is life giving, that is person to person, that is see you in the eye. You just heard it at Skegness anyway, where Leon said he's the lifter of your head. He's looking at you he's calling you daughter and son he is with you in this he is not just helping you from a distance he's helping you right up close he's present one of my favorite uh, stories in this regard is my friend patricia who was just stuck in so much oppression in her life she said it was horrific a very bad season and she had this dream that would change her life a dream about jesus she said that in the dream, she was in this pit. It was a big, big pit in the ground, and it was filled with sewage. She said, human sewage. She didn't say it like that. I'm being as kind as I can to you. And uh, she said it was filled up to her like, like chest with human waste, and, and, and much of it was hers. And she was chained to this pit. And she said she looked up to the top of this pit and she could see some friends from church. She had been estranged from church for a long time. But she saw some friends from church there and the friends were praying, oh, God, please get her out of the pit. Like, oh, God. And then every now and then they would say, oh, if you could only get out of that pit. And they were kind of sorry. They were... They were at least feeling, but they were sorry. And then her parents appeared and her parents were like, if you could just get out of the pit, like we have so many resources for you up here. Like just, you know, and then she said, then she saw Jesus and she thought, oh, for Pete's sake, like, when's it going to stop? You know, she's like, this is a nightmare. She sees Jesus and Jesus is all like Sunday school Jesus in a white gown. And she said, then to her utter horror, she watched Jesus turn around and lower himself into the pit. She said she, she remembers it so viscerally because Jesus's white robe began to be covered in human exc- excrement. And, and, and she's just like, oh, great. In the dream, she said, oh, great. Now we're both in a pit. Thanks a lot. And Jesus turns around and looks at her in the pit. And he's got this big smile on his face. And she said, what's what is why are you smiling? And Jesus says, well, we're both in a pit, but I know the way out. And in the dream, he began to open, there was a door, there was a way. He began to open this trap door and all the human sewage began to go. And he released her from her change and said, follow me. And they began together to crawl through sort of Shawshank Redemption it out of this sewage pit and into the possibility of a new way of being human, a new way to live. Jesus moves out of fatalistic thinking, too bad, too sad, too late, too hard, stuck at the end of yourself, at the end of ourselves, if we're honest. How church doesn't really resonate with people right now. The end of worldviews, how political systems are at the brink, how the treatment between the genders are at, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. This fatalistic worldview that has this gravitas, this Thanos-like character that sucks us into his orbit. And we just come into this agreement that says, ah, it's inevitable. And Jesus comes and says, ah, I don't think that word inevitable means what you think that word means. (laughs) I am here. I feel and I go with. This is what's so beautiful in the middle of an interruption Jesus goes with this religious leader. And then Jesus stops and says there's even room for this, even this woman and is with that woman. And when when Jesus uses the term daughter by the way in that scripture, one of the one of the great social problems of that uh, scripture is that the woman is uncovered. There is no relative there. There's no male to cover her. And according to the law, if she's out, uh, out of this thing and she's not covered by a man, she's subject to stoning. Like even in her healing, because she broke the law, she could be uh, killed. Isn't that just the way it is often with women, right? Even when you've expressed so much faith, even when you've come forward, even when you've mustered up the courage, we're still going to kill you. We're still going to push you down. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. And when he uses the term daughter, most of the biblical commentators say what he's doing is he's extending his coverage. He's extending his coverage to say she's with me and I'm with her. This is not just a passing miracle by a, 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 a charismatic leader who you know, lets her touch his robe and says, way to go, to believe me. No, this, a, this is an empathetic worldview. This is someone who is with. This is the Jesus who is with us, not just working for us, but working with us. It's empathy. It's empathy. So we feel, and then we go with and then, of course, we act. <laughs> we act. I remember uh, leading this discipleship training school many years ago in the downtown east side, and. Uh, for one of these leadership sort of missional classes, we had assigned these groups to these hard-to-reach areas. And it's already a hard-to-reach area, in a hard-to-reach area, if you know what I mean. And one of the groups had these it's kind of under the bridge, the skate part was pretty sketchy. And their job was to try to figure out what to do, to go and to act, to begin to pray for people, to actually ask what it is that they need, like just to begin to go make up. And it was literally like, even if you failed, we were going to celebrate that you tried. Because so much of our work, so much of our f- Failure is is actually not going at all. Is not trying. Is being sucked into the inevitable, you know, Thanos uh, worldview. Our success, even if we fail, we are succeeding if we're moving with Jesus towards life. And I remember uh, four weeks into this project, they only had two weeks to do it, and four weeks in, somebody tipped me off and said, you know, they're still just praying about this. <laughs> they haven't even gone. They haven't even stepped on the ground yet. I remember showing up at the prayer meeting unannounced. And they were like, oh, what are you doing here? And I was like, I have an answer to your prayer. And they're like, what? I said, I have an answer to your prayer. They're like, what is it? I said, it's time to go. (laughs) It's time to act. It's time to leave, it's time to go, it's time to be with, it's time to feel for these people, it's time to go with these people. We ever went to the park and we just said, what do you guys need? Like We feel ridiculous and we know we're uncool and we don't even know what it is we're doing here, but do you need anything? Could we communicate that we like you? Are there ways we could connect with you? And one of the guys, a skater guy, just like you would picture him, goes, dude, thanks for asking. Like, thanks for coming and gave us like a list. We could really use some water. Like, you know, we're really lonely down here. Like people are scared of us and don't talk to us. like and gave a list of things that we could begin to partner with them and we could begin together to see love leak its way out. One of our, our most powerful converts was from that skate park who had an encounter with Jesus because instead of just praying about it and feeling bad for it, we went with and saw the love of God and the resurrection life of God break through as we we moved with Jesus. And this is the invitation, the movement of life in the world, the movement of resurrection. What's cool about the scripture, and I'll wrap it up with this, is what's cool about the scripture is that this is how Jesus moved and you you just take any any story of Jesus and you'll see this over and over and over again this is how Jesus moves and this is how Jesus moves in us If you pay attention, he drags us out of fatalism. He breaks the grip of that inevitable Thanos paralyzed sense of like, I can never change anything. I am never going to get out of this. I cannot do anything. And he feels and he begins to awaken us to feel. And then he moves with us and we begin to sense his presence in us. And then boom, love breaks through in our lives, in our minds, in our relationships, in our bodies. And we begin to touch this resurrection life, this, this right side up living, this, this potential of Jesus at work inside of us. And then what Jesus does in Matthew 10, this, just this next chapter, is he commissions his disciples to go do the same thing. And this is where we begin to start changing that stat with that next generation. This is where we begin to say, hey, God is alive and working in this world. And here's how you're going to know it. I'm refusing to allow a fatalistic worldview to govern my church, to govern my mind, to govern my behavior, to govern my relationship. I am going to feel, I am going to go with, I am going to act in the power of the resurrection working in you and working through you to bring the best possible news to a world who's been told that death is where they end. And that is an invitation for
0: every single one of us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Legendary Talks. If you enjoyed it, make sure you hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit springharvest.org to find out more. We'd love to see you at Spring Harvest 2024.